Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Georgia Greenstamper is a writer's writer. She tells stories, and all writers like that approach in writing. Many of her following and her readers have praised her skill as a storyteller. Author Linda Scott DeRosier called one of Stamper's early works rich and satisfying, tales from a life made extraordinary in the living and the telling. Georgia Greenstamper is a speaker, a writer for Kentucky Humanities Magazine, and a commentator for public radio. Her new collection of new and collected essays, titled Small Acreages, is receiving accolades as well. Silas House says these essays do the most important thing that only the most accomplished writers do sometimes and that is capture and preserve a place, a time, and its people. And Stephen Vest, the editor and publisher of Kentucky Monthly Magazine, calls Stamper a Kentucky treasure. Welcome, Georgia Green Stamper. Oh, thank you, Bill, for having me today. It's a privilege. I want to return to a couple of words that Silas House mentioned about your work when he said, that these essays do the most important thing that only the most accomplished writers sometimes do, capture and preserve place, time, and its people. Place and time. We hear that discussed so often in Kentucky writing. Why is that important? Well, my my joke is that um, I come from very unimaginative people. Um, once we got to Kentucky, we just didn't move on. <laughs> they, they came in after the revolution and settled in on Eagle Creek and stayed put. Um, and, and, but I think that is part of it. I think because the culture has largely been rural and agricultural in Kentucky for several centuries until recent decades, um, <clears throat> people tended to stay, stay in place. They, they tended to stay put. Um, the extended families, um, you know, would marry, move down the road, across, <laughs> across the way, <laughs> the next farm. But you, you had these, these clusters of people. And I think when um, families have that kind of history when they stay close together geographically and also stay close geographically to other families that have done the same thing and you do this for generations the place becomes um, part of the family (laughs) the place becomes a character in their lives you you've heard all the stories about uh, Appalachia, the the trains of cars that came back after uh, when they had the great exodus north during the war. 
uh, to work in the factories. Every weekend you'd see all the people streaming back home on uh, the various highways. We saw that. I lived close to Highway 25, and we, we saw that, which was the precursor, of course, to I-75 today. And uh, you just always knew there was Kentuckians were coming home from Ohio or Michigan on Friday night, and they were heading back on Sunday. So I don't know how I can really explain the importance of place to Kentuckians. I'm, it just is. In my particular case, um, as I said, my family, I'm a seventh-generation Kentuckian in every direction you want to research and explore. And my family has been in that particular valley uh, where I grew up since, um, literally, since the 1830s. And you, you and I grew up, of course, in a family of uh, storytellers. This is another, another thing that I think contributes to the sense of place. Um, we, we, we entertained each other in the era of my childhood and, and certainly going back generations before that by telling stories. And so when they would tell the stories, they, they were telling the stories about this place. This happened there and this happened over there and he lived over there on that, that side. So you just had a sense of being rooted in a particular place that I presume people who have grown up in more transient families or environments perhaps don't have. But um, when I am at our farm, I have to say I almost feel closer to the 19th century than I do to the 21st century. Um, it is less changed than any place else in my environment. So that's where time enters the picture that you're in a place but you are relating to the time period that you're in whether it's you think you want to believe it's the 19th century not the not the modern world that you left when you made your trip to the farm well I do I'm I, you know because I'm about half crazy so I'm sure that <laughs> you know I'm not sure that that everybody up and down the road feels the same way I do and let me make no mistake obviously you are in the 21st century even when I'm at the farm we have electricity there's mm. internet service there's uh you know tv and cell phones and you know this is the modern world you zoom down to the the creek bottoms and one of those four-wheel, whatever mm -hmm. you call them, things. We don't leap on a horse and ride down. We leap on the little four-wheeler and ride down there. So obviously things things progress. Things are always changing. But uh, for someone like me who grew up there, when I'm standing there, I, I, I hear my grandfather. I hear his voice. He was born in 1879, and I hear him telling me, you know, what happened there and when I bought that piece of land and uh, yeah. know, it all comes back to me. Tell us about where you grew up and where a lot of these stories come from. Uh, Eagle Creek, you mentioned. Uh, give us a, a locale as in Kentucky, 
uh, we always want to know where you're from. Well, it, it's <laughs> if you were to draw a triangle between um, with the points of uh, Cincinnati, Louisville, and Lexington, Owen County is located almost exactly in the middle of that triangle. Some people call it the Golden Triangle. Um, because when I tell these stories, I think people think I'm talking about really some remote, isolated, oh, you know, got a swing in on a grapevine type of place. Mm. Uh, it really wasn't. And I emphasize that to just say that as recently as um, the 50s and 60s in this state, uh, many rural areas of the Kentucky were not dramatically different than they had been a generation earlier. I went to um, a three-room school. My husband in the same county went to a one-room school. People don't believe us when we tell them that. Uh, my husband went on to study at uh, Harvard Business School, and so here he was, you know, and he, he called back. He says, this is really kind of extraordinary. Here I am, and I started school my first five years in a one-room school. And the little school that I was in, we had three rooms. We were really uptown. We had three teachers for eight grades, but we had no um, indoor plumbing. We used an outhouse out back. We, uh, which was okay, except for the spiders. And uh, <laughs> we didn't have central heating, of course. We had a big pot-bellied stove in the corner of each room uh, that you learned uh, almost from infancy not to get too close to, or you could burn. I think about that sometimes. Nobody ever fell into the stove at school, roughhousing, or we, we just instinctively knew you didn't do that. Um, we didn't have a water fountain until, oh, I don't know, at some point we got a water fountain. But for the first few years, uh, we had to bring a little cup from home, and we each had our little cup, and we carried a bucket of water in from the cistern. And I've actually had people, readers, challenge me on that. They, they think I'm making it up. They're saying, no, you're, you're not old enough, <laughs> and you, didn't, uh, you, you couldn't have gone to a school like that. Or if you did, it had to be in some remote part of the state. That, uh, and I said, no, we were just 50 miles, basically, from Lexington or maybe 55 or 60 from Cincinnati and Louisville, but no, <laughs> it wasn't that remote. That's just the way it was. Um, in, in, oh, telephone service. We did not have telephone service in many rural areas of Kentucky until um, the late 1950s or early 60s. The, it was not profitable to run the, the lines in these rural areas, and we just didn't have phone service. So uh, even today, I'm still when I cell phone yeah. <laughs> amazes me. Yeah, here but you just... are. You're in a podcast studio uh, <laughs> in downtown Lexington, and something buzzes in your purse. And, right, it's a uh, phone. We're to that point. Uh, Georgia, um, you write about all of these things in the essays that you've been writing about, uh, the commentary that you've been doing for, for years, and for our uh, Kentucky Magazine, uh, Kentucky Humanities Magazine. Thank you very much. Um, but in all of that, too, in fact, you address this in the, in the first essay in your new collection, uh, you talk about love and uh, how important that 
is and has been and, and will be. And throughout our conversation today, I'm going to ask you to read just uh, small portions of that, if you will. And if you're ready to uh, look at that first essay and and either tell us a little bit about it before you begin or read and then tell us uh, how someone like yourself, uh, a writer, an essayist, uh, puts those thoughts together and look what happens um, on the printed page. Well, I opened this collection with a story about love because, and it's really love about between generations because that's a theme that runs through the entire collection. Um, if I feel the love that, say, my grandfather's, who are both uh, discussed in this uh, various points in this in these stories, if I can still feel their love, uh, and they were born in the 1870s, and I'm, I feel like I'm passing on that same love to my own grandchildren. It, it seems like to me that this is a continuum that connects generations. Um, in many Kentucky families, and well, I hope everywhere, but but particularly in these unique Kentucky families, where family is um, is so important and so revered, kinships, uh, so what Wendell Berry calls them, and and that's what we call them. We call them kin or kin folks. So I open the essay with this essay about lost and found, and it wanders all over the place, but opens with these words. I've come to believe that love, like light, keeps moving through time and space long after it leaves its point of origin. Sometimes I forget this. Sometimes when it's dark, when our worries run wild, I think love is like sound growing dimmer the farther it travels until one day it vanishes from the universe then some little thing will happen, and I remember. Lovely. Very, as someone else commented, I'm sure, I think I read, um, that's poetry. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Those words um, uh, are, are attached to one another. Now, from... We'll do a little craft talk here also. Um, is that, I think people that are yearning to write or other writers who want to, to, to do better uh, would ask, well, where did that come from? Where, where does one sit down one day, whether you were down at the creek or uh, in your study uh, in front of the computer, and come up with those words? Well, I'm going to give you the long answer, <laughs> not the short one. The long answer for me is that it started in my childhood with my father, who read poetry to me from his old high school literature book. We didn't have a lot of books, um, but we did have his old school books. And um, you know, he just started, he would read poetry to me, and I was just enchanted. Um, and so I would entertain myself uh, growing up as a child and a young teenager uh, by reading 
the poetry out of my father's old literature books. And so my first writing love was poetry. And like a lot of writers, that's what I started out writing. I wrote poetry in college and in high school and in college. And I had one of those epiphany moments. Uh, and this has been a problem for me as a writer all through my life. I'm, I'm, I'm a better reader than I am a writer. <laughs> I'm a better, I have this editorial voice in my head. It's always saying, oh, Georgia, <laughs> give it up. That's not good enough. But I did have a moment in college. I was studying, I don't know, someone magnificent. And I thought, you know, I'm never going to be able to really do this. <laughs> and so I stopped writing poetry, and I turned, um, I turned to prose in various, uh, its various forms. When I, I, I had a long dry spell when I was doing everything else but writing. I, I thought about writing, did a lot of reading. I talked about wanting to write, as I think a lot of people do. Uh, but I didn't actually sit down in the chair and do it because, goodness gracious, I was raising three daughters. I, oh, I had a million responsibilities. I, I just didn't do it. And uh, finally, there came a point in my life, as I put it, I ran out of excuses <laughs> not to write. I thought, oh, if you're ever going to do this, you're going to have to start. And circumstances collided that I was thrown with uh, a group of people um, that that encouraged me, you know, I had mutual support. And fortunately uh, for me, some of those were very excellent poets. And I think anyone who wants to write good prose uh, benefits from sitting down and studying with the poets because they emphasize the importance of um, diction, the importance of having just the right word. They emphasize the importance of rhythm um, as well as image and metaphor and all those other elements too. But they really emphasize the, the sound of, of language. And to me, a lot of prose is lacking that. And sometimes it, it, it has to because of the nature of what it's trying to attempt, but um, but yeah, I guess these essays are my are my failed attempts at writing poetry. Oh. <laughs> maybe it's that. They far maybe, exceed that. Maybe it's the wannabe poet in these. But 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 seriously, I think it's I, I do think for anyone um, who's starting to write needs to listen to the sound of their words. I have a tape recorder in my head. Every time I write a sentence, I sound it back. And if it doesn't sound right, okay, what's wrong? Is the rhythm off? Are there too many syllables? Are these sounds too harsh? Are these sounds too soft? You, 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 you filter it. Um, then when I get to a certain point, I actually read it out loud, not just in my head to see if it still sounds all right. And you can pick up, if you're listening to yourself, you can pick up problems in, in the prose when you do that. Georgia Green Stamper is a Kentucky writer, uh, essayist, 
a contributor to Kentucky Humanities Magazine, a commentator on public radio, and loves to read, uh, has a new collection of essays we're discussing uh, today on Think Humanities, and we'll be back with more from Georgia Green Stamper right after this word from our wonderful friends at Spalding University. As a Kentucky Humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one -on -one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Churcher, there are a couple of other uh, essays that you have uh, told me that, uh, although you said all of these essays are your favorites, but uh, we talked <laughs> like about, uh, like your children, I uh, don't want to pick the, the, the favorite, uh, but you, you talked about Natalie uh, 2020, um, and tell me why you, you like this, and uh, what you like about it, and... Uh, and how it came about. Well, 2020, I think, says it all in the title. <laughs> 2020 was such a turning point in all of our lives. It was different than anything I had experienced. I'd read about... Uh, I'd read about the 1918 pandemic. I had read about the sacrifices people made in World War II. I, you know, I read about all these things, but in my lifetime, I'd never encountered anything as challenging, really, uh, as the isolation that many of us experienced in 2020. My adult children, um, who... I think it was when the Red River Gorge closed down. They were they were shocked. They said, "Who knew they could close the Red River Gorge?" <laughs> you know? And I said, "Well, yeah, you know, we do have the farm." And they said, "Oh yeah, <laughs> we do have the farm, don't we?" I'm I'm having a little fun with them, but um, they took more of an interest in this this farm that that I have inherited, you know, from my family. Uh, than they previously had because they'd been going through their own getting started in the world and uh, oh yes this is nice that we have a farm but you know they hadn't paid too much attention to it and so we, we it, it became a, um, a sanctuary really for my family because we could go there and we still had to be careful with each other because we it's a fairly large family there's 13 of us and so we didn't go down and cram into the farmhouse, but we had room to spread out there. We could be together and picnic and um, play and talk and feel relatively safe together in this outdoor setting, and, and they started exploring, and of course I started telling them stories, because that's what I do, <laughs> but um, they helped me um, restore the old house that I'd grown up in. It had sat empty. My father was killed in a farming accident in 1991 on the farm and my mother moved soon afterwards because um, she had some 
health issues that prevented her from staying there alone. She had serious vision issues. But she never wanted to rent the house, and we sort of maintained it. Someone would go in and clean it for her twice a year, and we kept, someone came over and mowed the yard for her. But uh, really, it had very little maintenance in since 1991, really, when she left. So it had run down, and so we began to uh, do what we could to fix it up. You know, we painted, we cleaned, uh, but most specifically, there was my, my mother had left more in the house than I realized. I thought it was an empty house because she had taken out everything she needed to occupy the apartment she moved into, and she left the house furniture and you know, very special mementos and so forth. So I thought, well, most everything is, this is an empty house. It wasn't an empty house. <laughs> I found uh, my father's hats were still hanging in the bedroom closet. I found uh, a collection of mismatched dishes in the kitchen cabinet. I found books, <laughs> these literature books I was talking about, but but a lot of other books, too, were still had been left behind in the bookshelves and in the closets. I found things tucked away in um, in the attic. I, I even have a story in here about uh, Uncle Junior, mm -hmm. and I actually ran across that letter that Uncle Junior wrote. Uh, it, it, my mother had saved it. It was in the attic. I had no idea it still existed. Um, so I, I felt like I, I wanted to, it was a very emotional, it became a very emotional thing for me. The cleaning out of my, the final cleaning out of my mother's house. At this point, my mother's been dead uh, 13 years, I think. And I had postponed facing. I cleaned out her apartment, of course, and we dealt with all the other stuff. But I had not confronted what was left behind in the house at the farm. And so I had that emotional task to deal with. Uh, also, there were all the emotions that the pandemic was evoking um, in me and I think in many people. Um, and then also seeing my, my family um, coming back, you know, to the mm -hmm. land, to the place that... Uh, There's that word again. <laughs> to that place, that place that it sustained so many generations of my family mm -hmm. uh, before me. Um, it, it just became a very emotional mm -hmm. and powerful experience for me, and I, I wanted to try to write about mm -hmm. that in a way that uh, I hope mm -hmm. others can connect to also. Is there a little short segment that you can read from that to give us just a little flavor of your of your writing uh, of this piece? Well, I'll try. I'll skip around a little. How about that? Yeah, yeah. We'll start with the opening, and then mm -hmm. maybe we'll jump to the end of mm -hmm. the essay, because it's a fairly long essay. Mm -hmm. I saved the house, Mother, but I couldn't save much inside the house. Daddy's fine felt hats, the ones you left in the closet, were eaten up by moths. I know why you kept them. You said seeing them hanging there kept him alive for you, like he'd only stepped out on the farm and, and would be back in an hour. You said that I wouldn't understand. I did understand. But the dust and the moth holes 
I, I couldn't save them any longer. I saved the house. Its bones, all the wooden doors with their vintage doorknobs and all the original light fixtures. I even left Daddy's UK Wildcats calendars on the back of his closet door at your granddaughter's request. But I couldn't save the battered storm door on the front. I think you'd like the new security screen door that replaced it. I saved the house's kitchen cabinets and the magazine recipes you had taped to the back of the cabinet doors. I'm going to make those oatmeal bar cookies, the ones you baked in a Pyrex dish. But I didn't save the mismatched dishes that you'd left behind in the kitchen for your occasional visits to the farmhouse. Your leaving them was a good idea 29 years ago when you moved to the apartment after Daddy died, but it's been 13 years now since you yourself passed on, and I can't put off any longer this last bit of cleaning out. We'll use paper and plastic when we picnic there. And then I'll move on over to the, the conclusion of that PSA, because it, it goes on... Uh, with all the many things I, I did save and didn't save, and it ends this way. I saved the bones, the house, the view, the stories. It was quite a bit, but it wasn't much. I couldn't even save Daddy's hats, Mother. But this is what I did when the COVID-19 pandemic closed down America, when political hysterics wafted up from Washington like indecipherable smoke signals rising to the clouds, and I was afraid I might lose my mind in the awful newness of these times. I saved what I could of who we were, of who I am. For the children, I said, and maybe so, but mostly for me, to hear your voice again, and Daddy's too, wise, steady, laughing, guiding me through a maze that none of us have traveled before, that all of us have traveled before. I hear you whisper in reply, there is nothing new under the sun, the preacher said. And so I saved the house. I saved what I could, perhaps even me. I hope that is enough, Mother, because I couldn't save Daddy's hats. That's a very touching, very sweet, um, heartfelt, and captures the... Um, catastrophe of the pandemic so well uh, and the deep feelings that people had. Um, Georgia, the, the last thing I'm going uh, to, the, the, how many are there? I did not count the essays. They're, they're wonderful. There's so many of them and they, they, they touch on different, I guess we could count them up, but there, there are many. Uh, most of them uh, uh, new, uh, some, some have been published, uh, but not many in, in other uh, places. But I want you to uh, tell us uh, you mentioned Eagle Creek, your, uh, where the farm is. I want you to tell us the story uh, that you write, uh, your, your introduction and the story, uh, which is a history lesson, a uh, history story 
uh, on the essay uh, uh, titled Here on Eagle Creek. Oh, yeah. Um, I think there are 58 essays in the collection, mm -hmm. and <laughs> they wander all over the place. And we haven't really talked about the title, but I, I just flat out uh, stole it. Uh, with permission, uh, Mr. Berry. At least you're honest. <laughs> Mr. Berry or Mr. Berry's representatives at least gave me permission. That would be to Mr. Wendelberry, so. correct? Yes, Mr. Wendelberry, who, Henry County, by the way, is just right smack up against Owen County, in case you're not familiar with Kentucky geography. The Kentucky River separates uh, um, Henry and Owen. So I'm very. I can relate to the characters and stories in Mr. Berry's novels and fiction, but I ran across a quotation from um, um, his uh, one of his essays. It was an, an older essay published in uh, The Art of the Commonplace, the agrarian essays, and it went like this. It may be that our marriages, kinships, friendships, neighborhoods, and all our forms and acts of homemaking are the rites by which we solemnize and enact our union with the universe. These ways are practical, proper, available to everybody, and they can provide for the safekeeping of the small acreages of the universe that have been entrusted to us. And I, I just love this. I thought, oh, goodness, he, no one can equal Mr. Berry's prose. And I, I thought, well, yeah, that's kind of kind of what I cover in these essays. Maybe I can group them into these different categories, kinship and marriage and uh, friendships. And, and so the, 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 uh, the essays are grouped loosely into those categories in the book. But neighborhoods, which is, of course, a variation of place, uh, in the neighborhood of my the farm where I grew up, um, just down the creek, there's an island. Uh, it's about 110 acres, I think. Uh, Eagle Creek just sort of goes around this island. It just makes a, a turn and makes this little island and then merges uh, back together once it gets beyond the island. Uh, and right across the creek, directly across the creek from our farm, um, was an area that was once known as Free Station. And the interesting uh, historical significance of these of Mountain Island and Free Station is that they were both uh, free black communities uh, several decades before the Civil War. Uh, the Herndons, James Herndon and his sister Susanna, who was married to a, a Mr. Rogers at one point in history, so she used that name, um, emancipated uh, all of their slaves uh, well before the Civil War. Susanna acted first, and she was greatly influenced by um, the Kentucky and the American Colonization Society. Uh, she wanted her, uh, these people that she was emancipating, to sell the land and go to Liberia. I have not found any record that any of them did that, but uh, that was her hope. She wanted them, she thought that was the answer. She, she was fixated on that, and 
um, as I've, that's a whole nother story, the whole Kentucky Colonization Society and the American Colonization Society. Henry Clay, of course, here in Kentucky was uh, a big, big figure in that movement, and um, I'm not qualified to really talk in depth in any scholarly way about that subject, except as it touches on, on this local story, but, but she, that's what she wanted. Um, James was a little slower to reach enlightenment, her brother, but before his death, he did, and he uh, attempted to, he just thought he could do it, he'd just go into court one day and sign the papers, and that would be that. Um, but he was moving a little bit later than Susanna had, about, you know, he was, this was already 1850, and the winds, the political winds, were getting more and more, um, um, they'd changed. And at least on the local scene, they had changed locally. And he ran into one roadblock after another. He, he actually did not even succeed in getting his slaves emancipated in his lifetime. Mm. Uh, he did everything he knew to do, but everything he would try to do, they, well, they're not, you know, you have to bring them into court, or you have to put up a $20,000 bond, or you have to do, you know, they, one roadblock after another. Um, so in his will, he emancipated them again, <laughs> and he gave them Mountain Island, that was where he lived, he gave them that property outright, but I think um, sensing the political um, local situation, he was concerned that they would be um, cheated or robbed out of their land and left um, um, left without resources. And uh, he put Mountain Island in a trust. We used to call it an entailment. I don't think that legal use is ever uh, even used anymore, but we used to call it an entailment, and so that it couldn't be sold for several generations. And over time, Kentucky law has changed. I don't think you can even entail or put, keep land in a mm. trust longer than maybe two generations now. But at that time, you could. And so Mountain Island um, remained in the hands of descendants the ownership of descendants, well, to this day, uh, descendants of those people who live there uh, still own Mountain Island. Uh, Free Station, uh, Ansuki's plantation, uh, was sold off in pieces by those owners over, over a century or more. And in the 1940s, my grandfather actually bought a chunk of it, about 200 acres, but by then it had already passed through several other hands it, um, so we we own part of free station <laughs> just kind of fascinated me mountain so, island is such an interesting description you you don't think of a mountain being sort of in the middle of the creek there um, descriptive uh, describe it to us well i've Must been, have been on large I've been on Mountain Island, and to me, it doesn't look like a mountain. I'll be honest. It, it has beautiful 
rolling and very fertile um, fields, you know, kind of a, mm-hmm. you know, nice meadows and what have you. But it was higher than, I guess it was sort of a natural fortress because you had the water and it was higher than, you know, the creek bank surrounding it, the valley surrounding it. And so, I don't know, they came up with that name. And it was one of the earliest settlements in the area. And I think probably for um, defense reasons, mm-hmm. you know, it was probably a very, it was easy to to defend from anyone it needed defending from. <laughs> and it had springs, and the land was very fertile, and the first mill in the community, and the first tavern, and the first, a lot of things were established um, by James Herndon on Mountain Island. Uh, he was a he was a mover and shaker in that community in the early 1800s. Do you know if there's anything left structural-wise, uh, artifact-wise, on either Mountain Island or at Free Station? To my knowledge, there is nothing left um, on Mountain Island. Uh, I, I'm unaware of any edifice or any building that's left there. And even the cemetery is actually over on the mainland. There is a cemetery where... Um, Many of the uh, black families uh, were buried mm. for several generations, and the Herndons themselves are buried there too. Mm. Uh, and it, but it's over on what we call the mainland, but it's not on the island itself. So no, I don't think mm. so. On on Free Station, there are a lot of stone stack walls. We have quite a f- quite a few of those on our property, and. Um, I assume that they date back to the early 19th century mm-hmm. and and probably, I, I, I can't say with certainty who built them, but it's quite possible they were built by uh, the people who lived at Free Station. Mm-hmm. But there are no buildings. Mm-hmm. That uh, essay and that story and that history lesson uh, on here on Eagle Creek is included in Georgia Green Stamper's Small Acreage's New and Collected Essays, which is just out from uh, Shady Lane uh, Press. Um, I know, uh, Georgia, you're, you're very proud of this work. Uh, there are a lot of people that uh, are proud of you too. And um, we, uh, you are available to speak and to read uh, at the drop of a hat, is that correct? Drop of a felt hat. Pretty much, you know. Yeah, I like to I like to meet readers and talk with them, and I like to I like to talk. <laughs> and the, and the the uh, the book is available on Amazon, I know, but it's also av- available from the press. Um, Shadeland House Modern Press. Uh, and and they are they have a website and you can order from there uh, also and also from local bookstores Joseph yes. Beth and Barnes and Noble and all the normal places Good. yes well we um, thank you for coming in and spending some time with us thank you so much for having me Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities where we have been telling Kentucky's story for fifty years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.